Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast. We're your hosts. My name is Aaron Hedenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. The Arrangers Podcast is a show dedicated to insightful discussion about the art, craft, and business of music arranging and composition. Please subscribe to this podcast for future episodes. Hello, everybody. This is Aaron Hedenstrom, and welcome to another episode of the Arrangers Podcast. Drew and I are finally getting back on schedule here after incredibly busy summers with travel, gigs, and family commitments. But we are very excited to share with you uh, a fantastic interview we got to conduct with one of my personal musical heroes, um, having grown up here in the St. Paul, Minneapolis metro area, Mike Nelson has been one of the premier arrangers and trombonists of this area for decades now. And quite frankly, Mike has worked with some of the world's biggest stars in the pop industry and otherwise. And he was really, really fun to talk to. He shared a lot of stories about his work with Prince and a bunch of other pop artists. Uh, and how he got started in the business of music writing. This is part one, and uh, there's much more to come in part two. But for now, we hope you enjoy part one of our interview with Mike Nelson. Here we go. Well, Mike, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Arrangers podcast. My pleasure. Yeah. So Mike is a world-class arranger, trombone player, and just an all-around great guy. Uh, I happen to have the privilege of living in the same city as him, Minneapolis, and so I thought this would be an excellent opportunity to uh, interview someone who is one of my heroes. A hero? Wow. <laughs> yeah. No, it's very true. Oh, and, now the uh, pressure's off. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and for, for me, too. I mean, I've been listening to the Hornheads for years. And so this is really uh, a real treat to get to meet you over Skype and, and conduct this interview because I've been digging and checking out, you know, a, a lot of inspiration for my own projects and for... Uh, commissions for other people where we have to do funky horn stuff, acapella or otherwise, has been inspiration from the Hornheads and and Prince. So this is really an honor, and I'm so glad we get to interview you. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, I really appreciate it, guys. Thanks. So, Mike, I guess the first question that we usually ask our guests is, how did you get into the business of writing music? Yeah, I think um, my family, um, my my mom in particular, was... She was not a good musician, but she was absolutely a, a music lover. And so there was music on in the house all the time, whether, you know, at the public radio station. Not always music I liked, but always music. And, uh, and we had a, you know, a record collection of, uh, you know, classic big band and things like that, the Reader's Digest uh-huh. collections. And we had a piano in the house, and I was the youngest, and everybody took piano lessons. I did not do well at piano when I was young. I didn't have the attention span. <laughs> but uh, but I certainly, you know, I, I certainly was exposed to it at an early age. And, and, and actually, my piano teacher taught theory right out of the gate, too, which was a really great thing that came into play play a, later on but um, no way we, yeah me too i had this i had the same th- my piano teacher taught theory and we always did theory and piano combined together yeah and, and you know I, I you it's shocking how few people do that and and in fact uh, aaron and i were just talking about how we uh, 
saw a little talk with Maria Schneider mm-hmm. just a couple of weeks ago. And same thing, this, this woman that she hooked up at, with at a, at a young age and, you know, taught her just kind of the basics of what harmony meant and, and how it made you feel even. And now my guy didn't go right. that far, but it's just still the understanding, you know, the, the basic theory. It was, it, it amazed me that, you know, when, when I started getting into music, how, how quickly that came into play. And I was like, wow, I'm, I'm way ahead of so many people that were maybe better musicians than me at the time, but just didn't really have any idea sure. about, about harmony. And Most theory. definitely. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I really, uh, as a kid, I, I listened to, you know, Glenn Miller and, and, uh, so the old big band stuff. I grew up in a small town. There wasn't any, you know, any radio station to listen to anything contemporary other than rock. So I didn't listen to that. And, and then we had a listening room in our high school where the band director had a bunch of albums and it was a lot of Stan Kenton and Maynard Ferguson. I, I graduated from high school in 1978. So that was kind of in the, you know, really in the heat of the stage band, you know, there were competitions, the jazz fests were happening and, and Woody Herman and Buddy Rich and, and Stan Kenton and were all still touring. And, and, uh, and so, you know, I, and then I heard Bill Watrous and I heard, you know, the Kenton stuff. I heard, uh, um, Frank Rosalino and I was like, Oh my God. And so I, I, I started in high school, I started writing a little bit and, um, uh, very poorly, I might add, but my band director was very, uh, you know, very supportive. And I, you know, each year I got to write a piece for the, the for the big band and, and they'd play it at the concert. And wow. Just, cool. and, you know, I didn't have anybody to teach me. I was doing it by ear. I, in fact, <laughs> the, I, now that I remember it, the first, first song I transcribed was Stan Kenton's Peanut Vendor. And I forget what album it was, was off of, but, but I had, and I, and I had to do it on a record, you know, dropping the needle over and over and over again. And of course, um, I, and I didn't really have the skills to really understand what was going on there, but of course that's a very easy tune harmonically. And the only weird stuff is this weird stuff they did with the trumpets at the end. And that was the just cascading kind of, trumpet atonal stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And so, yeah, you could just kind of, Oh, those, those are notes. The notes were really obvious and you didn't have to really understand. Right. And, uh, but I, I of course I destroyed the track dropping the needle over and over again and sit, <laughs> sitting, sitting by the piano and just doing it. And the other thing I didn't understand was it was like all these odd measure segments, you know, it was like, Oh, you know, that, that phrase that was like 18 bars and then the trumpets came in and then it was only six bar. I'm going, what? Not realizing everything was just cued and would have, would have made the right. chart. It's a, a vamp. Lot, yeah. He would have made the chart a lot shorter if I'd known that. <laughs> <you> know? <laughs> but, and then I actually played the piano, some of the little piano stuff at the beginning and, and then, uh, went over and played the trombone solo as well. And, and I transcribed the flute solo for our, our, one of our sax players who then, I, you know, and again, not knowing how to make it right at the time, I wrote it all out and she was, she was more of a classical player and she, tongued the whole thing oh. i mean it was like oh, she dear. Did, and i go back and look, like, i think i still have a cassette of that it's so funny it's just like the whole thing is so square but you know it's the high school band it was be- right. it was a beautiful thing but yeah. so you know out of high school i went i spent one year up at concordia in moorhead minnesota which was not a good experience I tested out the first half of their semester of the theory program and kind of breezed through the second half and had a 
uh, a trombone teacher who I will not name that was just had nothing to teach me. Just uh, all he did was correct mistakes. You know, oh, you played up. Oh, yeah, I know when I make mistakes, you know. And I mean, it's just more about, you know, how, how do you make music? And I didn't recognize that until I transferred to Lawrence Conservatory in Appleton. And I spent one year with Fred Sturm, who uh, immediately it was a complete shift from from focusing on how technically to play the horn, which I I already had no problem with, sure. into how to play music. Now, unfortunately, with Fred, who was a, as you know, was a you know a wonderful arranger and incredible teacher, I did not have the um, fortune to take his classes. Okay, the year I was there, e- either the oh. imp- improv or the or the arranging class. Because I was transferring, I would have had to take it the following year, and I and I didn't go another year, so I had two years of college, and so basically, um, arranging wise, I'm self-taught. I mean, I never had the benefit of arranging classes, but as you know, as every musician listening to this knows, all you have to do is listen to to learn, right. and there's plenty of books that'll help you along and things like that. But my pretty much. You know, until actually until fairly recently, my experience has all been in transcription and listening and and arranging and learning on the on you know wow in, in process that's awesome and sitting literally I I don't have perfect pitch I have good relative pitch and I have you know I I have good ears because of all the years of of listening and yeah. and transcribing but um yeah. it's it it really uh it's it's one of those things where um. Early on, I, I, well, Aaron, you, there's a club uh, called, um, oh, what is it called now? It's a, there was a cl- there was a club called Rupert's in Minneapolis, okay, and um, it's it's out on 394 and and 100, um, and I can't think of what the name of the club is now, but it's a private club. But it was a it was a nightclub, and it had a ten piece band with uh, three horns, three violins, rhythm section, and six singers. And wow, it was a, a show five nights a week, live music. It's a, it was a beautiful club, a high end club. And the singers did at least one new song every week. So it was a massive book. And there were five of us that wrote the arrangements for all the singers. And so every week, this was, you know, early mid eighties, I was, I had one or two songs I had to transcribe, I had to try to fit horns and strings into them if I could. Uh-huh. And I mean, for years, I was paid to transcribe and write these charts. And so that was my real heavy learning to arrange kind of thing yeah. in a practical, professional for, for income way. Sure. Um, what a gig. Yeah, it was, it was really a great gig. And, and, I, I, and backing up a little bit, um, my Lawrence years, I guess, because I kind of skipped something as far as inspiration. When I got to Lawrence, all of a sudden I was in... Um, you guys both went to North Texas. You know how it is when you s- step into a scene where people coming from all over and they've all heard different things. Yeah. You just get immersed in this. Oh my God, I've never heard that. And Absolutely. and and Lawrence right. was one of those. My you know started started getting into the horn bands more. Of course, I knew who Tower Power and North Wind of Fire were, yeah. but really got into them then. But the the big one that was at Lawrence was Sea Wind. Okay, and yep. of course that was my introduction right. to Jerry Hay. Jerry right? Hay, absolutely, and that was a revelation. 
So once I heard those guys, all of a sudden I was like, oh, you know, I was really into that stuff. Plus, I discovered Carl Fontana there. I somehow I had oh. I had missed him in the Kenton years. I had only gotten uh, Rossellino, and it was like, and that also it changed me completely because as much as I love uh, uh, Rossellino, um, Carl Fontana was like, no, this is this is what I want to sound like this want to play and oddly For enough sure. I, I i mean it's weird how my career didn't really go in that direction although i still play my fontana transcriptions and i you know i i do a lot of that kind of playing but then the the funk and the rock and all the rest of that is a completely different thing so yeah. and so i kind of have to switch between them but anyway that was kind of the that one year at lawrence was there was so much that i learned there just to be a how to be a musician how to how to make music, how to emote as a, as a player. Fred Sturm's father was a uh, classical cellist. Okay. And, and so Fred taught from a, almost a classical thing, just talking about um, emoting. And took, I, I, I blew through two method books at Concordia and just playing them all technical. And when I got to Fred's thing, he said, well, we should play these Rocher etudes and I, I said, well, I've gotten through the, those books already. He said, well, let's, let's just try one. I tried the first one and he and I went just ripping through it at tempo, and you know, technically, I could just kill it. And he'd stop me about, you know, probably sixteen bars. And okay, we don't have to work on technique. Let's slow it down. Let's try to make this yeah. music. You know, and <laughs> yeah, I never did, an, yeah, yeah. never did another technical thing other than play him transcriptions if I felt like it in a lesson. So you know, just that that one year really set me up, I think. And then just you know, coming to Minneapolis with the intent of going back to school, but never having it happen, sure. and getting in the scene. And getting into into arranging and and you know also it just in in this town but it, it seems like it's universal the trombone players always tend to be the arrangers <laughs> that's and, and funny it's, yeah yeah I mean Dean yeah. Sorensen who teaches at the U right. you know we we joke about that I remember uh, our joke was that you know they they you know they were digging up something in the prehistoric age and they found a a stone and it was a business card of a trombone player and it said sack butt sash slash scribe you know <laughs> so, <laughs> that's and incredible so um but yeah you know so it you kind of always ended up you know I'd, I'd get into a group or whatever and you know people would write stuff but it was it always seemed like you know the bone players would kind of take the to the lead on it, and that was always the case with me and and um as i all the different groups i did and and i started working with as I was telling telling Aaron earlier, I, in in the mid late eighties, I worked at a music store, and all the the multi track technology started happening then the the little Tascam mm -hmm, four mm -hmm. tracks, the Fostex, the the uh, uh, Fostex eight track on quarter inch tape, and I bought all that stuff, and I did a lot of multi tracking of trombone stuff, and then using. I remember when the Ah, uh, the first Yamaha drum machine came out. I bought that. Oh yeah, you know, and I sequenced that. I was, I had a, I had a Atari ST. What was it? ST ten eighty computer, music computer. It had the built in MIDI. I had uh -huh. that stuff, and I didn't. I kind of knew how to. I knew, even to this day, I know how to use my gear just enough for my purposes. I was never a gearhead. But I bought a lot of gear, and uh, you know I know how You're how to more run. of a hornhead than a gearhead. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. it's sure that's sure what sorry, happened. Sorry. Yeah, Couldn't no, that's a, and it's perfect. That's a perfect comment huh, because yeah. I I really I I learned how to use the gear because I wanted to do more horns. <laughs> you know, I mean, right. I wanted to multi-track myself. Sure. You know, I and and actually 
my first um, my first exposure to the idea of multi-tracking is uh, Irby Green did an album, and I think it's a Being Green album, and he did a um, he did a, a four bone overdub of himself, and it's a tune called Quadra Bones, and and I it, that was something that never even occurred to me that that was even possible, and it's a it's really a great little tune, and and I know that that was kind of like one of the original inspirations for you know horn heads and 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 the just loving the sound of acapella horns yeah i just love right the sound of it and and so you know that's i wrote a bunch of bone stuff and recorded that stuff on my my fostex gear and and actually sent those tapes out and that's how i got started working in minneapolis more with doing shows and, and arranging things like that. Cause okay. I sent in a bunch of contractors and, yeah. and, uh, that, that really kind of opened, uh, opened my other uh, door into the, the scene a little bit. So, so that's kind of my road to, to Minneapolis and at least, you know, to start as a professional in town here. And, uh, once you got to Minneapolis, I mean, you've done so many things since then. I mean, you started working with like the new power generation and a bunch of other groups. Can you kind of get into like how that sort of line of work started up? Sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a weird thing cause, cause, um, you know, I've been asked about that a lot and, and how that came, came to pass. And, and one of the things that I realized, you know, um, you know, people say, well, that must've been a dream come true. And I, and I grew up in a small town, like I said, in, in Wisconsin, and I swear to God, I, right. I would have never imagined my career path. Huh. I mean, you know, it's like, no, I didn't I didn't dream that I was going to play Wembley Stadium to 110,000 people with Prince. Wow. That never, yeah. I mean, <laughs> who, who would think that? Who would even, who, you know, yeah. right. I'm playing, I play trombone. I'm a little white kid from Wisconsin. I mean, <laughs> what, really? What, yeah. You know, who would think that? And so um, when, and I knew who Prince was, obviously, when I lived in town here, but I didn't listen to to you know contemporary radio pop radio at the time and you couldn't you couldn't miss the big stars you knew who they were but yeah. I, you know i was right. listening to horn bands i was listening to jazz i was and that's the other thing is after lawrence besides the all the horn bands i also got exposed to all the the classic jazz stuff which i only had a very small understanding of uh-huh. and you know just just you know Parker and Miles and and you know I mean you name it I mean all the all that stuff I didn't know any of that stuff until I got to the college. jazz canon yeah exactly mm-hmm. just had no idea and and so um, with with Prince how that came about is again just writing horn parts for and and in being in horn sections and different bands just working with people that were doing stuff it just uh, you know uh, in particular. I was working with Brian Gallagher and Steve Strand. Okay, yeah. Um, and Brian was very good friends with Michael Bland. And Michael Bland was, I don't know if he was not out of high school yet, probably, when we wow. started working with him. But he was just working on projects, and I wrote horns for a couple of things because Brian was working with him. And he said, would you do this? Sure. It didn't pay anything. It was just you were making music. And a couple of years later, Michael's playing with Prince. And, um, wow. And the, the way the the Hornheads came together is this was for diamonds and pearls. They were, they had been rehearsing diamond and pearls for quite a while. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, uh, they, um, w- at some point Prince decided, uh, I think he was trying out different possible warm up acts. Okay. And one of the warm up act ideas was for Michael to have a band, a ho- kind of a horn band with a larger horn section doing the music of Madhouse and, and those who are real 
Prince fans will know that Madhouse is um, a, a funk group that Prince had. I think they did three albums, and uh, it was a rhythm section and Eric Leeds mostly playing Barry Sax. Wow. So it's a lead huh. Barry Sax and, and funk, kind of jazz funk rhythm section thing. And nice. so they sent me those tunes, like four of those tunes said, range it for five horns. Mm-hmm. And so I was actually managing a karate school part-time at that time. And I, I we, put, <laughs> we wow. put, put together the horn <laughs> section and they came over to the karate school after hours and we practiced there. And then we went oh out gosh. to Paisley and rehearsed with the band. Prince wasn't there. He was in Europe working on the Symbol album. Okay. which is the, the album that we're all over. Uh-huh. But they were finished, Diamonds, Pearls tour. He still hadn't gone out yet, and he's already working on the next album. Wow. And wow. so we did a rehearsal, uh, you know, four tunes sent, you know, and then they sent the tape to him, and about a week later, here's some more tunes. You know, okay, we'll do them. Did it again, went out to Paisley. This was in the wow. sound stage, you know, and uh, just walking into Paisley was pretty amazing too. But yeah. And at that time, it was just full i mean every office was full it was just you know in 24 hours a day everything was going on and, wow but prince wasn't there so we rehearsed again and then you know didn't hear anything and again there was no deal there was no you know you're getting paid for this it was just you just you were creating right. music and uh, you know michael said well this might turn into something okay whatever you just yeah yeah you just do it and then yeah then the third call was to go to a another band's rehearsal and get get shot on video. Well, that band turned out ended up being Carmen Electra's band. Okay, wow. It, it wasn't. Oh my gosh. It wasn't at that time. It was still Margaret Cox, who was a singer in town here, had a deal with Prince, and she was gonna. It was gonna be her band, but then it switched over to Carmen's band. So so we went over there and we just basically faked along the songs so he could see us, I guess. Mm-hmm. Then the fourth call came. And went out to Paisley, again walked into the soundstage. But this time, there's a there's a rack of pedals and a, a, a mic with you know floof on it and a bunch of guitars. And we went, okay, oh boy, this is it. And and um, so we're standing there just kind of waiting. And and Prince comes walking in, and all the Madhouse tunes, the titles were just the track number spelled oh, out. Okay. So first, first, huh. first album was one through eight yep. and then nine through eight. And so we had done all these numbered songs. And so he comes over, he just shakes each of our hands and, and then walks over to the guitar and he's not even facing enough and he, us and he holds up four fingers and Michael Bland, knowing the routine, just immediately counts off the tune four. And he's like, two, three. Whoa. And we're like, what, what? oh, oh, oh. And I'm scratching. We're playing four. We're playing four. And we grab the chart <laughs> and we start playing it. And then he points to us for solos. And we did, and we jammed for uh, probably six, seven hours. Wow. And, oh and somewhere gosh. in that, along that session, we started working on Sexy Motherfucker. Hmm. And that was the first. And then so basically we jammed for six, seven hours. Then he said, let's record and literally stop in the bathroom, oh my head, to, head to Studio A, and we were in the studio for another five, six hours. Wow. And that was the start of the stuff we did on the Symbol album. Wow. And I don't remember what else we did in that session because it wasn't just that tune. But he, you know, he just, he had a new toy. And, hmm. and, and so then, then we started getting called in, and then all of a sudden... The That's pro- so dope. Yeah, the production guy goes, you guys got to get your passports ready. And we're like, what? Oh. <laughs> what's this for? <laughs> and, and literally we were still... And we were on. We then we started rehearsing Diamonds and Pearls show and Carmen Electra's show and recording the album, the symbol album, 
And then literally we're on the plane still memorizing our music. And the next gig we played with them was in Tokyo Dome. Wow. You know, and it was like, oh my goodness. Yeah. It's like, what just happened? You know, and it was, I don't know, it was a matter of a couple of months. You know, we, we started those, did the demo stuff in like November and we were in Tokyo in April and, um, incredible. Yeah. And then, then that was that, then it was just crazy from there on. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What a trip. What a story. That's, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I, and in fact, and, and, and the other funny thing about that too is, um, I flew over to Tokyo with Maite, his, who was, oh, I think she was only 18 then maybe, uh-huh. and who became his wife. And we were just like hanging out, you know, playing Game oh Boy my. tennis and stuff. She, wow. was, she was new on the band too. And, and so when we, after we went on tour, it was the horn section and Diamond and Pearl, the two female dancers in Maite, that, that was our tour bus. And then NPG had their tour bus and Princess wow. had his. And, and so then on that tour, the European tour, there were 110 people in the on tour with us and wow. 11 semis worth of gear and so that's that was the size of that tour you know it was just insane Woo-hoo. so is that all lighting and stage yeah yeah risers five, and... yeah five level stage and and wow. everything oh yeah good yeah and all the all the i mean because the band was fairly large but you know you needed all his his uh, costuming people in the support team yeah the support team yeah. so like 110 wow. total i mean and and maybe well, 20, 20 of them were banned man, maybe yeah going back to the that that first jam session for a second um yeah. you know that you did with prince were you charting out stuff or were you kind of dictating and then memorizing as you went along like what was the mo for that that first uh hit yeah, I mean, basically, he would throw basic things at us of what he wanted, and then just mm-hmm. kind of expected it to happen like the right hand of his keyboard, you know? Wow! Because that's how he played uh. that Oberheim stuff, and so, you know, he he well, he'd say play this, and he'd say, it's an A seven, and it's like, okay, and I'd have to give notes really quickly, and and sexy MF, uh-huh. you know, is a very that was that that was a very that like I said that was kind of the first one that we were actually kind of ch- working on and so we had you know we had staff paper up there and everybody's kind of scribbling but um right what would happen for instance that um prince uh, prince has a he had a ridiculous ear i i, I just can't even mm-hmm. tell you but he didn't have the the vocabulary to tell you what he wanted or necessarily even he wasn't even sure what he wanted until he heard it. And he did a lot of right, just right. really incredibly in, interesting extended voicing things mm. just kind of naturally. Sure. And I'll share a story about one of them in a moment. But this particular one, Sexy MF is, you know, it's a classic sharp nine voicing, right? And so we, he said, he goes, uh, play an A7. And I, following instructions, just gave an A7. And uh-huh. we play it, and he goes, uh, oh, no, make it minor. And I said, okay, it changes right, to minor. Right. And we play it, and he goes, no, that's not it either. And I said, I think I think I know what you want. And I voiced out an A7. He goes, yeah, that's it. And then we moved on. Yeah. And so that would happen a lot. And other times, he'd give everybody an individual note, and he'd want a certain instrument in a certain range. And where there'd be weird cross-voicings because he wanted the tenor to bend or me, he he threw some of the weirdest stuff at trombone because of the because wow. of the way it played with the slide, uh-huh. and he really right. liked that. And um, and so uh, between the tenor and the trombone, we were always grabbing weird 
little notes. We'd do a voicing, and then he'd go, no, play this note. And it'd throw the voicing off in a right. in a classic sense, you know, in a, in a traditional sense, but it didn't ruin it. It was just like, oh, okay, that's okay, that's cool, you know? Yeah. Because he just right, loved to right. try stuff. Wow. You know, I mean, that's that was one of the big lessons is just never assume it won't work until you at least throw it, you know, try it. And yeah. he was throwing one thing over wow. another constantly. So it seems like he was somebody that had a, a huge imagination and just like a very like exploratory spirit. Yeah. I've never been around somebody so creative. I mean, he literally huh. was creating all right. the time, 20 hours a day, seven days a week, whether it was doing music or working with his graphic artists or working with the wardrobe department. Wow. Or he was just, he was just, you know, popping in and out of the studio and doing whatever he just, uh, and to the day he died, as far as I, my experience with him, that's how he was. He just embodied creativity and he couldn't, he couldn't stop creating. We worked with him for like 10 years straight from 91 to 2001 and then had a break. And it was, um, I never had a falling out with him, which over 25, 26 years, I have to say, there's not a whole lot of people that can say that. Wow. And, um, wow. so we had a, we had a good relationship start to finish and I'm, you know, I'm very proud of that and grateful for it. But, um, when we, we had a break through most, a lot of 2000, did a few things here and there, but not so much. He was using Maceo Parker a lot and Greg Boyer, who's a great trombone player and arranger. But back in, in 2011, we came back, he called me up to do an arrangement on one of his tunes and we were out doing it out at Paisley. It was a horn solely, really fun horn solely thing. And Peter Asher happened to be in town doing a thing at the Dakota. But Peter Asher, is a, uh, for those of you who don't know, is a, a very well-known producer. Mm. But he was, a, he was a part of a British invasion group called Peter and Gordon. And, and, but he grew up with the Beatles. And his, oh, wow. and his sister dated Paul McCartney. And the Beatles even gave them a couple of songs to get them going. But he discovered James Taylor. He produced Joni Mitchell. Huh. He produced Barbara Streisand. If you go look at 10,000 Maniacs, he's, his production credits are huge. He hasn't, he hasn't worked with anybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, didn't, I have to admit, I didn't know who he was when he was in the studio. But uh-huh. I was sitting there, me and the engineer, and I was waiting after we had finished. We were list, listening to the track. And then um, it was just me and the engineer and Peter and Prince. And Prince was talking to Peter about Joni Mitchell and saying, you know, she she needs her own studio that she can access 24 hours a day. I can set her up here if she wants. I got some songs for her. Blah, and he was going on and on. And Peter said, well, I haven't talked for in a year and she's, you know, her health is whatever. So they were just kind of back and forth. But Prince's point was, he said, and he said it, and I can't remember exactly how, but it, essentially he said, you have to have access to, to uh, the equipment and the, the things to create when you get the inspiration, otherwise you'll lose it. And so he literally had to, that's why Paisley Park was there. And that's why people were there on call 24 hours a day. That's why the horn section was on pagers back in the 90s, you know, is because you would get up, you call at midnight. In fact, I, you're not going to be able, you can see this, you can't want to see it at the podcast, but this picture, that's me and Brian and oh, Kathy wow. in Studio A. Oh my um, gosh. So that session happened. That was for the, the Exodus session. Got a page, you know, about 11 o'clock. Showed up at the studio at 12. I walked into Studio A, and he said, we need horns on these two songs. And then he just got up and left. <laughs> wow. And I had to use oh. <laughs> I had to use the, you know, the million-dollar SSL and the 48-track, like a tape <laughs> deck. 
going rewind, forward, oh fast forward, gosh. and write a, and wrote a chart while everybody else slept on the couch on the other side wow. the, for five hours, and then woke them up at five in the morning, and then we tracked till mid till noon, you know. And so, oh my when goodness. He, and when he wanted something, he wanted it then. Part of that is just because he wanted what he wanted, but it was really about keeping the creative thing flowing. When he was into a song, he wanted it. He wanted it done. He wanted it from start to finish. He didn't want to put it aside uh-huh. because he because once he put it aside, then he got something else, and then he might lose track of it or lose interest or just forget about it. So was that stressful to be on call all the time like that? <laughs> God, yes, it was incredibly <laughs> oh stressful. Gosh. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. You know, and it's like and, nurses at the ER had to <laughs> right. be ready to perform an operation at any yeah, moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and it, I mean, it was. And and you also never knew what you were walking into. You right. know, I mean, it was just like, what's, you just get a call, Prince wants it, okay, and call everybody up, and we'd head out there, and and that would be it, you know. Um, later years, um, when we weren't actually on salary, because we were quite a few years, we were actually salary employees, so we had we had a salary plus session plus touring, plus, you know, it was wow. an add-on kind of thing. I mean, wow. you just couldn't ask for a better deal as a that's musician. incredible no, that's great and um and there was there were times where months would go by where we didn't even get a call and that's hmm. that's when i started writing the hornhead stuff okay because we were uh, we were getting together and playing horn parts and trying to stay sharp and but we didn't have anything else to play and i just started expanding horn parts cool and so it, it turned into whole tunes and 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 it turned it into the sound. It's just like we're playing. I'm going, God, this is just a great sound. Why not mess around with this? So he, you know, I mean, he really kind of facilitated that from from that, uh, you know, just kind of giving us that uh, you know, basic income so that we could not worry about it for a while. Yeah. But later years, when we weren't on salary, when he'd call to do a session, then we could kind of name our time. Sure. You know, I say, well, we're not available. And what I tended to do was was go do a session at 10 a.m. Because I knew he usually had about a four-hour window when he wasn't in Paisley. Not always, but usually. Mm-hmm. I'd say, well, we can't get out there until 10 a.m. And we get out there, and, and he probably wouldn't be there. And then I could kind of do my thing. And if he showed up at the end of it, it gave me time to at least get it down how I had imagined it before he got a hold of it. Cause, and not that that was a bad thing, other than he thought he moved so quickly and he thought so quickly, and he processed and, and placed things that you'd get three bars into a horn chart and it seemed like he already knew where, where it was going. So no, no, let's do this instead. Mm. And I'm like, but you haven't even heard half of my horn chart yet, you know? And so, and there were certainly times where, um, like there's a couple of tracks on emancipation where they go, the tunes go really long. And the, the reason they go really long is he, he would, put these tunes together and then put these vamps at the end mm-hmm. and then, and it'd be jams and there'd be interesting stuff, but then they'd eventually, when the tune went on the album, they'd be, you know, cut off way before it even get there. And uh-huh, se- uh-huh. several times I'd, I got to the, I'd write the basic chart, you know, and he'd have horn guides in there sometimes, sometimes fairly full horn guides, sometimes nothing, sometimes somewhere in between. And I'd go through and I'd write it out just the way he did it. Then I write out, maybe two other versions on harmony version, uh, you know, uh, how I, how I would devise a kind of thing. And then any other space, any drum fill, anything else, I'd put something in there. He didn't use all the stuff, but the one thing with somebody that creative is I didn't want him to ever say, why didn't you put something there? Huh? Yeah. He can produce uh... it. He can pull it out, but you can't 
create it right then. You know, it's like so I I know he he became used to that uh-huh. for me and stuff I'd write didn't necessarily end up even where it was originally, which was also fine and always kind of fun to see what he did with it. Yeah. But mm-hmm. these extended tunes, a couple of times I'd, I'd get to that and I go, Oh man, this is great. And I just write a whole big horn thing at the end uh-huh. of it. Right. And so we, we get in this studio and we, we get done with what he considered the end of the tune. And you know, he said, okay, that's good. And I said, well, I got, I got a couple more things. He said, oh, let's hear them. And we'd play it, and he goes, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so we'd lay that stuff down, and then, it, then you know, oftentimes that would end up in the in, on the tracks. And Wow, know, cool. So, so he was open to that wow. stuff. It was, it was great, yeah. It's it's tough to work with people that have a really specific idea sometimes, and, and it's like I got to read your mind to try to figure out what you want. It seems like that was a really cool situation where you could kind of, hey, let's – let's show you this and then he could kind of keep it or, or leave it out if you wanted. Absolutely. And even more so in the later years, I mean, these last five years we worked with him, we didn't, we did a few of them out at Paisley park. And then we, then I just started doing them at home. And, um, uh, because of, because of conflict schedules and trying to get things booking musicians, you know, got, he, he was using what had happened is one of the things about Prince is he is, I've never met anybody more in the moment hmm. than Prince. He, right. he just, he, everything was now, and, you know, people talk about, you know, his, um, you know, saying one thing and then doing another and, and all this stuff. And I, my take on that is that there was nothing dishonest about that. Hmm. It was literally on Tuesday, this was true on Wednesday, this is true. And it just happens to be exactly opposite what was true on Tuesday. And it wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't contradicting himself. He wasn't being uh, deceitful. He literally, when it was happening, that's what it was. And now what's happening is this. And that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, and right. it did, it, you know, and, and so you learn to, to deal with that as well. And you learn to not ask questions uh-huh. when he gave you an instruction. That's he, in his mind, he gave you everything you needed to know. And I only asked, like he gave me something once really early on and I asked a follow-up question. I could just see him get uptight hmm. and he kind of answered it and not, mm. but not really. And then just kind of spun around on his heel and took off. Wow. And I was like, okay, don't, I, I just, you know, he, and he's going to trust me to do this. And you just took a shot and I, you know, 25 years and I don't, I didn't really miss, you yeah. know, I mean, maybe it wasn't what he's expecting, but it, apparently didn't matter because he got what he wanted even if it wasn't and when he wanted specific stuff he i mean it was very specific if he had a hook he had a hook but yeah it to your point about um having create i i think about the 200 albums i've done or whatever and all the horn arrangements and stuff i and i just i mean it's a crazy amount of them and i just haven't i've been so fortunate to not having to deal with people that are like you said that mm-hmm. that they they think they have an idea they can't express it and they don't really want you to do what you do and and you have this weird little conflict i had a guy a blues guy and it was a it was a vanity project of his but he was a good player and singer and he hired me to the project and and our first discussion what he brought up he said what if i don't like the horn parts and I said, um, and, and I, I said, well, if you have ideas, you need to give them to me and mm. I can work with them. If you don't, then you have to listen to my work and know what I do 
and trust me to do it. If we can't do it that way, then we're not going to, then I won't take the project. If we do something and you want a little change, I'll try to give you as much information as I can before we record it. And if you say, oh, it'd be nice if it's something like that, I'm, I'm glad to, to take some of that advice. But, you know, I, this is what I do. And if mm-hmm. you're hiring me, then this, you, ha- you know what you're getting. I'm, I'm a known property. Yeah. You can do your research. You're hiring, you're hiring me for a reason already. Right. So either either we right. work, work that way or we don't. I swear I haven't I, I can't believe I haven't run into more of that. And maybe it's I got to a point where people that were calling me already knew what I did and knew who the rest of the hornheads were and knew that even if they didn't know exactly what they're getting, they knew they were gonna get something special, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Know? Because that's, you know, I'm sure you guys worked in, in, when you work in the commercial world, it's just the opposite of that. And you get sure. all these people that know nothing telling you they want, you know, they're five talking heads all saying contradicting things and none of them mean anything anyway. <laughs> just let us, we let us do our thing. You know? Right. But they have to, they have to make sure they have value in the, in the, you know, or in their paycheck, I guess. So yeah, I, I I'm very, I've been yeah. just incredibly lucky. Yeah. Incredibly lucky. Well, it sounds like in that situation with this blues guy you were just mentioning, you know, one thing that, that I've been thinking about a lot is communication with whoever you're working with, collaborations of any kind. The fact that you were just having this conversation up at the front end of things, right. I think is like the best idea because you know how it works when you you just kind of go into it, no communication, and then problems come down the line. You don't, it's hard to go backwards and fix that. But oh. if you're just like, hey, this is this is the deal. This is what I do. Then they kind of know what to expect, and then right, they right. can they can back out if they want, but sure. most likely they're not going to because they trust you. Right, and and that that album he didn't he didn't change a note. It turned out great, and he couldn't have been happier. But great. you know, yeah. but you understand that some of the some of the um, apprehension with with somebody like that because he's not a professional musician, and so he doesn't quite know the process. But you're right. I mean, having the conversation, and I, uh, believe me, I've uh, you know I've had things go off the rails in different ways mm-hmm. for that very reason that you didn't say something up front or, or, um, dealing with people, um, Drew, if you're dealing with China, I'm sure you run into this is the, the language barriers. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Don't get me started. Yeah. And I, I, <laughs> I, you know, I did a thing, uh, I, uh, I did a version of pie hole for a guy in Germany and I, I, I probably have the email somewhere and I wish I could remember what the back and forth was, but he wanted it for a, a, you know, a brass band rather than the hornheads, and he gave me this instrumentation. Can you do it for that? And whatever the back and forth was, in the the way he stated what he what he wanted, um, implied to me that whatever it co- would cost would be fine. And it was, and in and if in English, I swear to God, if I send you that sentence, you would that's what you would get from it. Okay. You would look at it, and there would be no yep. doubt. Yep. But when I sent him a bill. He thought it was going to be thirty dollars because that's what the horn arrangement oh, cost no. on the website, uh-huh. and he's oh just do it a different. I was like, I just spent two days on this, and I'm going to be thirty dollars, you yeah, know. Yeah. But I was no screwed. way, I, and and I didn't charge. I sent it to him, and I could have not sent it to him too. I could have you know played that game, but I thought, uh, you know what, I I should have actually given him a number. I assumed that the the language was clear here, but it was, but there was enough in his English that. That showed that he he wasn't absolutely fluent. Sure. And so I should have I should have right. done that. So I it was that was on me, 
and and you know talking price is hard some sometimes it's hard sure. all the time yeah it was hard with prince it Boy, was, it's hard yeah. with everybody absolutely you know and it's harder now because the record companies don't have budgets people people are funding self-funding and you just people go well, what's your price and you go well, what's your budget i mean it's just like yeah. back and forth what do you do and and right. you know you start yeah. working with prince and he wasn't filing in the union anymore and it's like i don't know how i we ran into all sorts of crap because i started hiring you know the Minnesota Orchestra members, String Genius, with Adi Ashaya, who is who we work, work with yeah. when we do these orchestrations, and and we had we were doing it kind of on the table, but then they started showing up on albums, and the union's not not going to deal with that, and so then I go to his new publishing company, and they don't they they you know which is now dissolved of course, but at that time it was like I'm talking to them and they're like clueless, and I'm going to see well we're not a record company, I'm saying you're going to be a record company, I, whether you want to be or not, because that's how Prince works. And when he wants certain people, you're going to have to deal with that. He kind of almost figured it out. And then, then he passed away, you know, and it was like, we were going, Oh man, we were so close to, so close to getting in a groove, doing these fantastic orchestrations. I mean, and, and the, the other thing about Prince back to his creativity and his just wants to hear whatever, you know, whatever you have to say kind of thing on these songs. Uh, I have a, I have a half a dozen tracks that are full orchestrations. So it was, you know, me and Adi and String Jesus and the Hornheads. And he never told me this, but I would bet any amount of money that at least three of them were literally just so he could hear what it sounded like. And he would drop that kind of money just to see. It would just go in the vault. And it's just mind-boggling that you would have somebody that creative and with those resources that would allow you to just do that. We're going to pause right there and we're going to finish the interview next episode in part two of the interview with Mike Nelson. Thanks for listening, everybody. Drew and I have been at this for several months now and we want to encourage you to subscribe because we have Many more episodes planned for the future. We actually have a whole schedule planned out for the rest of 2017. And we're really excited about the uh, great interviews we have lined up. We already have two more interviews recorded and ready to be edited. So please subscribe so that you can keep getting fed with these interviews we're doing and that we can continue this community effort to collect as a community of arrangers. If you have any comments, questions, or Anything you'd like to share with us, please email us at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon, and we will see you next time.